Hey, gracious God, we thank you for um, the beauty of this day. I thank you for every person in this room. We sit here expectant, hoping and longing to hear a word from you. And I pray that your spirit would just be here and that you would speak in and through me and that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see. Amen. So today is September 11th, 2016. 15 years ago, um, 15 years ago on this day, exactly, uh, the, the World Trade Center towers collapsed. Uh, and I was reading in Politico yesterday a, a narrative history, an interview with some of the key leaders who were involved that day. So with Andrew Card and a few of the other people, Ari Fleischer, who was a press secretary at the time. And, and what struck me, what struck me as I was reading the article is, I think it was Ari Fleischer said, we didn't have iPhones or Blackberries. He said, all we had in our belt was a beeper. And he's like, because I was at the White House, I had a high quality beeper. He said, so it could fit like 20 characters. And so I got this text that came through that said like, World Trade Center attacked. And I started thinking about that. Like, that's not that long ago. I mean, 15 years is not that long ago. And just to think how much technology has changed in the past 15 years. I mean, I don't know where I'd be without my iPhone. Um, I mean, I literally would be lost. I would not make it to a meeting. I would probably never respond to your email. And so when I was thinking about this, I was also, pre- it's going to be your first Sunday back, why not start off with something really controversial? And so I was thinking about the, thinking about the church, um, which is what, what I do when I'm up at two in the morning trying to feed the baby. And, um, and so I was thinking about the church, and I was thinking about how much the church has changed in the past 20 years. Because about 20 years ago, there was a realization that by church leaders that the path that we were headed down was not a sustainable path because they were smart and they looked at demographic trends and they looked at charts and graphs and realized that the number of young people going to church was going down like this. And so there's this whole movement to do church differently. Now, if you were an overly church nerd like myself and I were to sit you down and say, okay, what are the top like three or four most influential pastors and churches in America, the chances are you would name off Andy Stanley at North Point Church Church in Georgia. You would name off maybe Craig Rochelle at Life Church in Oklahoma City. You might name off a guy named Stephen Furtick at a church um, called Elevation um, in North Carolina. Um, Or you might even, if you live in the city, maybe say Mark Batterson in NCC. Now, what's fascinating is all four of those churches are less than 20 years old are less than 20 years old. And the idea was to do church differently in a way that would attract an entirely new generation of people. So if you are, if you are not churched or you are too young, you may not remember what the 90s were like in church. You still had, like the biggest issue that the church was fighting over was, it was called the worship wars and whether we allow drums in the sanctuary. Today, the biggest issue the church is fighting about is whether we let women preach or the inclusion of LGBT people in uh, in the church. But back then, it was, do we let the drums in the worship service? And then some really, really smart pastors, you know, on the vanguard, you know, out front on the vanguard, um, they, uh, they said, you know what we'll do? We'll have two services. We'll have the traditional service with the hymns, and then, and this was always broadcast on the big banner out front, contemporary worship at 11 a.m., right? And, and, and so gone were the, ro- the choir robes, and gone were the suits, and, and in were the drums and the guitar. 
And so over the past 20 years, and the, the table church in many ways is part of this movement of doing church differently. Like I'm dressed up here like I would be dressed about any other day. 20 years ago, it was rare for a pastor to be on stage in jeans and a button down unless maybe it's in Southern California. And then even then it was kind of on the edge. It's gotten so bad. Like if I had to wear a suit on Sunday, it would be, it would be really bad. And, and uh, I had a wedding yesterday. This is totally off topic, but I had a wedding yesterday. And I realized that my only wedding suit was at the dry cleaner, and I, was getting, I had to be there at 6 o'clock. I wasn't performing it, luckily. But I had to be there at 6 o'clock, and at 5.30, I realized that my only wedding suit was in the dry cleaner. I did not have time to get it. So I began to go through my closet, and I found some of my old church suits. And so I pulled out my old church suit. It was a summer church suit, so it was kind of a lighter color. And then I realized I had no belt or any shoes to wear with it. And so I ended up cobbling together an outfit, and no lie, I looked like Tony Soprano from, um, like, you know, I wanted to make someone an offer they couldn't refuse. I mean, I, I, Charles said, as I was walking out the house, she's like, if you had a gold chain on right now, like, you could totally be a 90s mobster. All that to say, I'm glad we don't wear suits anymore. Um, but the problem is, even with all the changes and all the attempts to be relevant and getting rid of the pews and getting rid of choirs and choir robes and all the things that we've done over the past 20 years and attempt to be relevant, it still seems as if the church is in a tailspin, right? Every day you open up a new article um, on the, in, in, in the newspaper and it's talking about, you know, some religion reporter is talking about the decline of the church. And, and what I find fascinating about Christianity, but there is a resistance to Christianity, there is a resistance to the church, and there's a lot of negative feelings. I'm guessing, in fact, I'm not guessing, I know because I've talked to you. Some of you sitting in this room here are some of those people who have resisted church or have some really negative feelings towards the church. In fact, like people have told us, and this, this, this keeps me up at night because people have said, this is like my last chance. This church, you seem to be doing something different and I'm going to give Jesus one last try, but you screw it up and I'm out the door. And they're like, well, no pressure, right? But, but, I, but that's, that's where we are, right? We are... We are we are, many of us are jaded and have really negative feelings about the church. And so what we're going to talk about, and it's going to get interesting. Some of you are going to, it could get emotional. Some of you may get upset with me um, because we are going to, uh, we're going to have an honest conversation. And, and so the church people among you are most, among us are most likely to get upset. Those of you who are like new to church or coming back to church, you're going to love it. The only thing I ask is like, don't jab the person next to you or like, see, I told you so. Like he agrees with me. Um, it, but, but what you're going to find out here at the table is that we are never afraid to have difficult conversations and honest conversations and, and be open and honest about the church and about our problems and about our shortcomings and, and, and how we can live differently. So here's what I want to do. I, I want to start with, with a big question. I want to start with a big question. And the question is this. Um, what's the church? What is the church? Now, again, those of you who are overly church, Kung is this famous um, Catholic German theologian. He wrote an 800-page book entitled Church. Right? I took an entire class in seminary called Ecclesiology that where we debated what the church is. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is if we were to ask someone on the street, just a random person on the street, what the church is, what would we hope they would answer? And I would hope their answer would be something like this. The church is a group of people who are following Jesus, or our church is a group of people who are following a guy who claims to show us God and to clear the path to God. 
That's the church at its most basic element. In fact, we could narrow it down a little bit further and just say the church is a group of people who are following the way of Jesus. If you look at the Bible, that's that's the biblical definition of church. But the question then is, if that is the church, if the church should be a group of people who are following the way of Jesus, why the resistance? Now, I get a rejection of the premise. If you say, yeah, the idea that there's this dude named Jesus who was the son of God, who was raised again, that's crazy talk. I get that. We can have that conversation. But that's not the conversation that most people are having. It is, I resist church. I resist Jesus' people. Right? This group of people. Gandhi said it this way. Jesus, I dig. Uh, this is a paraphrase. Jesus, I dig. God, or his people, I can't stand. And, and so the question is, why is there resistance to church, which is supposed to be a group of people who follow this guy named Jesus? And, and by the way, this guy named Jesus, his top three commandments really could be summed up into one, one verb. Um, but his top three commandments are love this. Love each other. Love God. And love your enemy. Love each other, love God, and love your enemy. Right? That's, that's kind of like the, if you boil down the message of Jesus. So why then are a group of people who gather this guy who says love God, love each other, and love your enemy, what is so resistible about that? Why is it that people resist the church? See, because here's the thing. The only thing that should be resistible about the church, the only thing that should be resistible about the church is our loyalty to Jesus our loyalty to Jesus. That should be the thing that makes us resistible. And for the first 300 years of Christianity, for the first 300 years of Christianity, the thing that people resisted about the church was their incredible loyalty to the kingship of Jesus. It was their loyalty to the kingship of Jesus. And, and, and the thing was, the Christians were persecuted because they said, Caesar is not our king. Jesus is our king. And as you might expect, Caesar didn't like that. And Nero didn't like that. And others and the other powers that be didn't like the fact that they swore allegiance to somebody else other than the empire. They're like, dude, we love you as much as we could possibly love you. We will do anything for you. In fact, if you go back and read the history, if you read like ancient historians about the early church, like the one thing we know about them is they were willing to lay down their and sacrifice their own life to care for other people in the Roman Empire. When there was this massive black plague that swept across the empire, it was the Christians who were walking through the streets, picking up those who were dying and caring for them and nursing them back to health because everyone else had abandoned them. And so the early Christians were like, look, we would do anything for you. We love you more than you can ever possibly know. But there's one thing we won't, we won't negotiate on, and that's our loyalty to Jesus. Like, that should be the only thing that's resistible about the church. And the reason the Christians were persecuted, the reason the Christians were persecuted was not because of their music. Now, it could, it could be said that Christian music is persecution, but we won't go there. Because they put people off. And it wasn't because they're exclusive, but it's they, because they said, Jesus is king. And for the first three centuries, in spite of the resistance that the church received from the empire, for the first three centuries, the church flourished. In 325 AD, there's this guy by the name of Constantine who ends up becoming the emperor of the Roman Empire. And if, you're, and if you study church history, one of the things you'll know is that a lot of people say that moment, 325 AD, was when everything changed, right? And Christianity gets corrupted, and, and, and he's the one reason that uh, Christianity takes off in the empire, 
But scholars are now saying that the reason Constantine converted to Christianity, the reason he converted to Christianity was purely a practical political move because up to 50% of the Roman Empire, by 300 AD, up to 50% of the Roman Empire had said, we want to be followers, we follow the guy named Jesus. And to think about that, right, from in 300 years, going from some backwater um, group of people, Jesus never traveled more than 25 miles from his home in Palestine. To go in 300 years to becoming, to becoming what becomes the dominant empire of the Roman, or the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, there was something about the early Christians that was irresistible that people wanted to be a part of. They wanted to be a part of. And so what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, um, we're going to talk about what is that thing, what, what is that thing that, makes, that made the early Christians so irresistible? And what I'm going to say is this, that the things that you resist about the church, the things that you resist about the church, are probably, and the things that those of us who aren't in this room today, the things that we resist about the church, I'm going to go so far to say that the things that you resist about the church are the very things that Jesus would have resisted. The things that people resist about the church are the very things that Jesus would have resisted. And and this message, what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, is really important for those of you who who have resisted the church, who have given up on church, who are on your way out the back door. I think what, you're gonna, what we're going to talk about is going to be really important for you. But I also think what we're going to talk about is going to be really important for those of you who are spiritually malnourished. You're overfed. You're overfed with spiritual calories, but you've been, you've been eating, you've been gorging yourself on empty spiritual calories. And even though you have been obsessed with being fed, you feel empty and you feel malnourished. And so to both of you, the seeker and the overfed, Jesus says with a gentleness, come unto me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. And Jesus promises water to all who thirst. And what we see in the life of Jesus is that Jesus does not invite us to religion. Jesus does not invite us to a new religion. Jesus invites us to himself. Jesus invites us to himself, and in inviting us to himself, and through his life, death, and resurrection, I believe that Jesus challenged the religions of the world, the religions of the world, including, including Christianity. Because I don't believe that we escape the destabilizing and the deconstructive deconstructive power of Jesus' message and Jesus' life. Bruxy Cavey, one of my favorite um, Anabaptist uh, pastors, um, says it this way. He says, Jesus is not pointing towards a different and better religion, but instead Jesus invites us to himself as an alternative to the weary way of religion. I want to read that again. Jesus is not pointing, not pointing towards a different and better religion, But instead, Jesus invites us to himself as an alternative to the weary way of religion. And so to talk about about the issue of religion and to talk about what people resist about the church, I want to use something called the temple model 
of religion, the temple model of religion. Now, I have to admit, I stole this idea from another pastor, but as I researched and prepared for this sermon, the more research I did, I realized he stole it from someone else. And so, um, yeah, it's all going to come out in the wash anyway. So, but the temple model of the religion is essentially says this, and, and the thing is, we find the temple model of religion. I have some uh, background music. Do you hear it? <laughs> Did my background music go away? Okay. I thought, this is going to be fun. Um, The temple model of religion is found in every ancient religion. I mean, if you go back to the ancient Near East, if you go back to Egypt or the Assyrian or the Persian empires, if you go back to some tribe in the middle of nowhere that's never been touched by modernity, you will find the temple model of religion. If you go to the Middle East today, you will find the temple model of religion. And if you go to most churches today, you will find the temple model of religion. And here's how I define the temple model of religion. It's first this, that in the temple model, there are sacred places, sacred grounds, sacred buildings, sacred temples, sacred sanctuaries. There are sacred places. And there are sacred texts. There are sacred people. And they are, um, you could say it a couple different ways. You could say sincere followers, or you could say slightly less um, charitably superstitious followers. Right? So there are people and sincere followers. And, and so in the temple model, you always had a sacred place, that, that, that space, this, this holy other. And in the sacred place, in the sacred place, were held the sacred text or the sacred oracles or the sacred inscriptions. And then there were the sacred men. And for whatever reason, they're almost always men. They're the sacred men who interpret and control the sacred text and tell us and tell us the way to God. And all these sacred followers and all these sincere followers, um, whatever religion they are, they all are told, here's how you're supposed to live your life. And if you don't live your life in this way, then you risk judgment. Right? Go, go look at, pick your religion. There's some variation of this, right? And if you, if you follow this way, goodness comes to your life. And if you don't follow this way, there's judgment. And, and the truth is, in the temple model, it grants extraordinary power to sacred men or sacred leaders. Because the person who controls the meaning of the sacred text has an immense amount of power has an immense amount of power. Some of you have experienced this. Like you are dumb enough to read your own Bible and start trying to figure out what Jesus says and then you went to a pastor at some point or some religious leader at some point and it's like, hey, I think I see Jesus saying this particular thing. And like, no, 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 uh, you clearly don't understand. Did you see the degree on the wall? I have an MDiv and a PhD. And what you're seeing here, there's a Greek and a Hebrew word that you just aren't understanding and then they throw a little Greek and Hebrew at you. It's taking Jesus at his word. I had no idea that that's what this really meant. Because the person who controls the knowledge is the most powerful person in the room. And now this is whether it's some ancient tribe and it's far away that's never been touched by modernity and it's a witch doctor or whether this is a church in Washington, D.C. And I think the temple model is alive and well today. And what we're going to discover is that much of the temple model thinking is alive in our churches. It's alive in our churches. But what I believe is that is that the arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model of religion. I would even go as far as to say the arrival of Jesus signals the end of religion. Not just for a few, not just for Jews in a particular time, in a particular place, 
not just for people in the ancient world, the arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model of religion for the entire world, for everyone in all places, in all times. This is good news. This is good news because there would no longer be any sacred places. There would no longer be any sacred places. Read the Gospels. What you see with Jesus' life, with his words, and with his actions is that there's no longer any sacred place because when you are standing on the most sacred and holy ground imaginable, when you are in the most sacred holy of holies, when you are in the most sacred temple, when you're in the most sacred church space, the most sacred thing in the room, it's you. And it's the person behind you. And it's the person in front of you. And it's the person to the left of you. And it's the person to the right of you. The person to your left and to your right and behind you and in front of you is more sacred to God than any piece of dirt you'll ever stand on or any building you'll ever sit on. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, don't you know that you are God's temple? Jesus says, look, there are no more sacred places. You are the temple. No more sacred people. Because with Jesus, there is no longer a need for anyone to mediate God to you. So often in religion, and even some of the religions you grew up in, even if they said something different, you often felt as if you needed somebody else to mediate God to you. In the ancient world, there would be a priest, a high priest or someone who would make a sacrifice to God on your behalf. And once a year, you could go and try to make contact with God. And in Jesus, there is no longer sacred people. Nobody else would need to go before you. All that would end. We are sacred, each and every one of us. And then the sacred text, the Old Testament, would be fulfilled, Jesus said, with a single word, with a single verb. What I think we see in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the beginning of something completely new. It is a new way of living. It is a movement is a movement of people that live by a different, set of, a different set of values, a different story. Jesus was not interested in Judaism 2.0. Jesus wasn't interested in temple religion 2.0, but he came to bring something completely new. Jesus was starting a movement. There's a story. Jesus is on his way to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi has two names, Caesarea and Philippi, because it used to just be plain old boring Philippi. But then there's this guy named Caesar Augustus, and he really liked himself. And so in honor of himself, they changed the name of it to Caesarea, Caesar's Philippi. And so the disciples and Jesus were on their way to Caesarea Philippi. And I'm reading slightly into the text here, but I'm sure it's what happened that day. They're on their way to Caesarea Philippi, and and as they're on their way, they are saying, who does, who does Caesar think he is renaming a city after himself? Like, who does this guy think he is? And they're mumbling and grumbling. And Jesus being Jesus, he always was looking for an opportunity to teach and help them learn. And so he uses this moment to turn to his disciples and said, well, well who do you think that I am? Who do you think that I am? And in this moment, Peter, who's impetuous, right? Remember, Peter's the guy who's always the first one to jump in the boat. He's the first one to say he'll follow Jesus. He's also the first one to say he'll abandon Jesus. Peter's just always the first one. And so Peter's like, oh, Jesus, I've got an answer. I've got an answer. Some people say that you are, some people say you're a prophet. Some people say you're John the Baptist resurrected. Some people say, and he begins to go through this list. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, who do you say that I am? 
Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, I tell you, I think you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the one we have been waiting for. You are the one that all the texts that we've read and that we've learned and we've studied for all these years, the, the Hebrew scriptures, you are the one that this all points to. You are the Messiah, the one who will liberate us, the one we have been waiting for. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are right, Peter. You are right. He said, that's who I am. And you know this because God told you. You didn't come up on this on your own because you're not that bright. Um, and then listen to what Jesus says. He says this. You can find it in your Bibles, Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, and I tell you, Peter, that on this rock, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, here's what's interesting. It's a terrible translation. Most of your Bibles probably say on this rock, I will build my church. But that's not what Jesus said. In fact, if you go back to the original translation of the Bible in English by a guy named William Tyndale. Anyone know William Tyndale? He ends up getting killed because of his translation of the Bible, partially because of the way he translated this word. But, but William Tyndale, in, in about 500 years ago, translates the first edition of the English Bible, and it's what the King James Version ends up kind of using it as kind of the foundation. But William Tyndale translates this word the right way in the first English Bible, and then later the powers that be change it, and what they use is a German word that then gets translated into English, and the German word is like Kirch. It sounds a lot like church, but it meant 500 years later, when you think about, when you think about church, you think about a space, a building, a place where you go. But the word that Jesus uses at this moment and at this time, he says, Peter, upon you I will build my ecclesia. And that means my gathering, my assembly, my congregation. And in this moment, Jesus is announcing the beginning of something new, not of a sacred place or sacred people with some sort of special knowledge, but Jesus is announcing the beginning of a movement. And he says, look, I am building a gathering of people on you and on these disciples gathered here. I am building a gathering of people and I will be with them wherever they go in the world. And Jesus announces a new movement. But Jesus also announces a new covenant. Under the old covenant, under the old covenant, to, to go to God, you needed someone, a high priest or something, to go before you. And so Jesus is sitting abraded each and every week that he, Jesus lifts the cup. Jesus lifts the cup and then begins to tell them that this is the blood of my new covenant or this is the new covenant shed for you. This is my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples are like, what the crap are you talking about? Why all the talk about broken bodies? Why all the talk about blood? In fact, earlier in Luke's gospel, you see Jesus talking to his disciples and he's like, look, you are not going to understand what I'm saying, right? what I'm talking to you about. Actually, it's John's gospel. He says, I'm not, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about but there's going to come a day when you're going to understand. And so he's talking about this new covenant. And like, what is he talking about? He's talking about giving his life as a sacrifice instead of needing a sacrifice and there being a new way to God. And he's just kind of babbling on and their eyes are starting to glaze over and they don't get it. And then, and then there's this moment as Jesus is hanging on the cross. And Jesus is hanging on the cross and they see them, they see him bleeding. It all begins to come rushing back. And all begins to make sense. That Jesus sees himself as the final sacrifice for sin. Not just for good Jews, 
but for all mankind. And then what Jesus does is he gives a new meaning to the sacred text. He gives a new meaning to the sacred text because he says, do not think that I have come to abolish these texts. I have come to fulfill them. I have come to fulfill them. This is a big statement because Jesus was claiming that the entire Old Testament, that the entire Hebrew Scriptures, the, th- the words that they had spent their entire life memorizing for some of them, Jesus claimed that these words, that all the prophets, that all the prophets were prophesying about him. Jesus claimed that all the deeds in the Old Testament somehow reflected towards his arrival and says, I am fulfilling the Old Testament in my life, death and resurrection. And then Jesus not only fulfills the Old Testament, but Jesus also fulfills the law. Up until this point, up until this point, if you were a good Jew, you had 630 regulations you had to, to live by, to be, to be a good religious person. And what Jesus does is like, it's easier, or he said, it's shorter and simpler to remember than, than 630 commandments. In fact, Jesus says, look, it's easier to, difficult to live. And he gathers his disciples around and he says this, he says, a new commandment I give you. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. And as I have loved you, so you must love each other. Now, you, you, we miss the power of this sometimes. But just before Jesus speaks these words, just before he speaks these words to love one another, Jesus did an act. Jesus did something to show what this love looks like. They knew in this moment he was not talking about just doing like an act of, you know, an act of generosity or an act of kindness or taking a meal to someone, all great things. But in the moments prior to saying these words that we are to love one another, Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God, who they have seen heal people, who they've seen take blood off the ground and help bring someone back to life. He takes his robe off and he kneels on the ground and he begins to wash their feet. He begins to wash their feet. And Jesus does for them what they would not do for themselves. Jesus does for them what they would not do for themselves. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And so when he says a new command I give to you to love one another as I have loved you, they get what he's talking about. And then Jesus put on his outer garment, his outer garment back on and he said, now as I've done for you, this is what you are to do for one another. And what I think is happening in this moment, down the leadership paradigm, because Jesus knows that in just a few hours he is going to be led away and he's going to die on a cross. And then just a few short years later, the, the, the movement of this Jesus movement is going to spread like wildfire. And his early followers, the people who had been with him in the upper room, they are going to begin to be seen as sacred men, right? Because when Jesus becomes a big deal, if you hung out with Jesus, whatever you say about Jesus, it goes, Right? And so no matter good or bad, Jesus knew that they were going to be seen as sacred men. And so Jesus flips the paradigm on its head and says what it means to be a sacred man or when you begin to think you're a sacred leader or a sacred person, it means that you get out the towel and basin and you begin to serve as I have served you. And we explored this during our Easter season, but on the cross, we believe that love wins because Jesus replaces the sacrificial system with his own life.
And what we see is that, that love would replace law keeping and self-sacrifice would replace animal sacrifice, right? You go back into ancient religions, take away Judaism, you go back into any ancient religion and the belief was that we need to make a sacrifice to somehow gain the favor of the gods, that we need to do something hard enough and difficult enough in order to gain the, the, the favor of God. And Jesus says, no, I am giving myself as the ultimate sacrifice. And this is so powerful. We can't miss this because what Jesus is saying when he says that, when he says that love replaces law and self-sacrifice replaces animal sacrifice, he's saying our relationship, the way that we are measured with how we are doing with God, the way that our vertical or the way that our horizontal relationships are measured or the way that our vertical relationship is measured is through our horizontal relationship. Right? The way that the eloquent prayers that you pray it is not through the number of Sundays that you show up I will love you more but it does nothing for Jesus right that has nothing to do with the way that we are measured the way that you were measured with how you were doing with God and how you are as a follower of Jesus is how well you love the person that is most difficult to love Jesus reinforces this in the story he tells. He says, look, if you were at the temple, if you were at that sacred holy place and you were about ready to make a sacrifice in order that you might be right with God, he says, if you were at the temple and remember that you have, you have a beef with one of your friends, get up, stop doing what you're doing, go and find them and make it right. This is a total departure from temple way of thinking. And then Jesus does the unimaginable. He does the unimaginable. And because we live in the 21st century, we miss the power of this moment. But when Jesus sits down at the table and he takes the bread and he takes the wine on Passover evening, he co-ops and overturns the most sacred religious tradition that they, have, they had. At that moment, if he is not who he says he is, they should all get up and leave the room because this guy has gone bonkers. They had celebrated the Passover, the night that Moses had delivered them from Egypt 1400 years, for 1,400 years. Every year they celebrated this. And now here's this guy, Jesus, making it about himself. It's like Pope Francis saying, guys, I'm a pretty good pope. Yeah, you are. You are such a kind guy. Here's what I want you to do. Next Christmas, I want you to celebrate my birth. And you're like, Pope Francis, you've gone crazy. I can imagine the disciples said something like this to Jesus, like, Jesus, Maybe do like tomorrow? Like we could like have a new day. We don't have to take this day, right? Can't we make like a new day to celebrate this? By doing this, he's like, look, I'm not just trying to make a little addition to what you're doing. This is something completely new. This is something completely new. This is the arrival. Jesus signals the arrival of the end of the temple model of religion. Jesus signals the end of religion and the beginning of something new. And what we see is that Jesus destabilizes every religion in the world because there are no more sacred places or special people. Right, the Old Testament, remember the Old Testament? It will be fulfilled in the single verb. The entire law is reduced to a single verb. Love God, love your neighbor. Love yourself or love your enemy. Love. And after the, after the resurrection and after the ascension and after Jesus goes back home, the church gets off to a really good start. Right? And when you go back and read ancient historians, like the thing the early church was known for, they're like, yeah, they're kind of crazy, but see how they love each other. But something went off the rails 
And what was a movement of love and grace to a hurting and dying world has somehow just has allowed temple religion to trickle back in. Because the, the, my belief is that I think it's safer to be good religious people. It's safer to be good religious people with safe religious practices than it is to, to follow full-heartedly after the way of Jesus. Because religion rarely offer, calls us to sacrifice much, and Jesus calls us to sacrifice everything. And Jesus offers, what Jesus offers transcends every religion, in every place, and in every time. This group of people that we are part of can begin to strip away the things that are causing people to resist church. But to figure out how we're going to do that, you need to come next week, okay? So here's the thing. We are talking about some, we will talk about some heavy things, and we believe here at the table that circles are better than rows, you need to be in community with other people. This week, we're going to do community group, I mean, community dinners. It's just a way to meet other people. You don't have to talk about Jesus or the Bible or anything. They may have prayer before the meal, depending on how religious the, that crowd, your, your host home is. But it's not going to be a really religious time. So if you're like, I don't know about Jesus and church and all that, community dinner is your thing, right? If you can make it through the prayer before the meal. But then after that, next week, we're going to begin community groups. And community groups are, are a group of people where it is a circle of people that care for you, um, that pray for you, and that, 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 are, that have permission to ask you difficult questions in your life. Right? And so you're going to need someone to process some of the things that we're going to talk about. So if you're not part of a community group, I would really encourage you to, to get to join one. Um, we will have more information next week about the different community groups that are launching not this Monday, but the following Monday. And then we have them almost every night of the week throughout the week. So I'd really encourage you to, to find a community of people that you can discuss this with. Can we pray? Hey, gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the end of, end of temple religion, end of religion, and that we have a path we longer need any sacred men to clear the way. Gracious God, I pray for every person in this space. I pray that you would continue to open our eyes and open our ears so that we may see and hear you. And as we go out into this week, be with us. Amen.